0: Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. There should be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Judges. So please turn with me to Judges chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's some Bibles in the back and some people who would love to walk them to you. Judges chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. But before I read, I have a question. As you're living your life, going about this world, do you ever wonder what God's doing, what what God's up to. Have you ever caught yourself thinking about that? I mean, I I remember right where I was at on 9-11. I remember when I turned on the television, I remember what I I was wondering, what am I seeing? What's going on? What's happening? Why is it happening? But not only that, I started to think. A question popped into my mind where's God? What's he up to? You see, when, when tragedy happens, when trauma happens, it forces us into sort of uncomfortable questions, a sort of theological question, a question like this. If, if we were to put a GPS on God on 9-11, where would have he been? But it's not just 9-11. It's not just events like 9-11. Just read your favorite newspaper, or read your favorite news station, or or read your favorite blog. And all of them tell us about evil and injustice, brokenness. They, They detail famine and wars, natural disaster, crimes of passion, crimes of terror, crimes against the unborn, right? We could go on and on and on. And in the back of our minds, uh, sometimes with a whisper, sometimes with a shout, comes the faint question Where is God in all of this? Now, on our birthdays, we don't ask this, do we? In times of celebration and joy, we're not thinking, Where's God in this? Or if we did, we'd say, Well, obviously, God's right here. God's in the laughter, God's in the joy. But what about our sadness? What about our anxiousness? What about our nightmares? Where is he in those days? When fear and worry come upon us, all of us intuitively ask the same question. Where is God? This morning, we're going to look at three different stories. And what we'll learn is that God is doing far more than we might first think, in the midst of uh, all of the brokenness and suffering in this world. This morning we're going to see three judges. The first judge, Othniel, is a model judge. Then we'll meet a second judge, Ehud. He's not a model judge. He's an unorthodox judge at that. And then finally we're going to meet a third judge with one verse, Shamgar, a very mysterious judge. And in all three of these stories, in each of these judges, we learn that God is doing far more than we might first think. God is active and integral in each and every one of these stories. So, where is God? What's he up to? What's he doing in those days so that we can understand what he's doing in these days? Well, that's what we're going to look at in these verses. So, the big idea is simply this. It should be on the screen behind me. God is with his people, in answer to this question. God is with his people and delivering them. If you will turn with me, we'll read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3 of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of cushan Rishitham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served cushan Rishitham eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishiatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishiatham. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. That's our first judge. And he's a model judge. Now, what do I mean by he's a model judge? Well, last week we talked about uh, that chapters 1 and 2 is a a sort of introduction. And it tells us all the different elements that are going to be in this book. And each one of those elements is in this very story. All of the different kind of cycles of Judges are contained in these five verses. Just just look at them. Israel sins, verse 7. God's anger is kindled and then they're enslaved, verse 8. They cry out to God, and God raises up a judge, verse 9. He pours, God pours out his spirit on, on Othniel, and then they're delivered, verse 10. And then finally they have rest, verse 11. Those are all of the elements we saw in the first two chapters. So what we find is a sort of paradigm for how it went in the times of Judges. Uh, when I was in high school, I went over to a friend's house and I saw his, his parents and his older brother playing this card game. It's called Bridge. Some, some of you know it. And I sat there because I wanted to play it and they started explaining how to play Bridge. But if you know anything about the card game Bridge, you know how difficult it is to explain it with words. So instead what they said is, sit down, we'll play. A, we'll play, right? We'll, we'll play kind of a sample, a, a, a test game. And it's only when I played the game that I began to understand the game. That's the sort of thing going on in these verses. This cycle is played out perfectly for us to see as, a, as an example and a template for how things ought to work. Israel falls into sin and evil. Particularly, they were worshiping Canaanite gods. But they were to have no other gods but the true God. But temptation gripped them. And so they began to worship other gods. And so because of God's love, his jealous love, his anger is kindled and God doesn't protect them. And they're enslaved to the king of Mesopotamia. Now what do we know about this king? Well, there's guesses about who this king is and and everything. But but in many ways, we, we don't have much information about this king other than his name. But that's all we need to know. His name literally means Kushin the double wicked. Kushin the doubly wicked. That's his name. So pretty much we, we have all we need to know about this king. He is very, very wicked. Not just singularly wicked. He is doubly wicked. And so for eight years he ruled over Israel. That is until God raised up a deliverer, Othniel. Now, we met him in chapter 1, didn't we? He married Caleb's younger, uh, Caleb's daughter. Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. God said in chapter 1 that it would be Judah that would lead, so it's no surprise that the first judge is from Judah. Caleb, he marries Caleb's daughter and he settles the land. And then we learn that the Spirit of God falls upon him. He goes out to war. And he defeats the king and the king's army, and the people are saved. And whereas they were enslaved for eight years, now they have rest for 40 years, five times. Now, there's something going on here. There's something interesting going on in this first story. I said that it was a model story of, of salvation, but it's pretty boring. Wouldn't you Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it, it's like the Cliff Notes version. I mean, we're, we're going to get used to, like, juicy details, right? Some really good details. We get none of them here, right? It's, it's boring. The, the story is remarkably brief and lacks the colorful details that we're going to see in even the story of Ehud in a second. For instance, where did the battle take place? Man, it doesn't say. What size of army did Othnil defeat? No idea. Did, did he do it alone? Like Samson? Shamgar? Did he have friends? Did he have an army? We just don't know. We, don't, we just don't get the details. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if you took a children's picture Bible, there's a reason why Othniel doesn't make it in any of them. There's something remarkably unremarkable about Othniel. But I think that's the point. Maybe we're not meant to glorify Othniel. Instead, I think the author wants to draw our attention somewhere else. You see, Othniel saved Israel, to be sure. We read that in verse 9. But just just look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, God raised him up. Then, verse 10, God sent his spirit, the spirit of the Lord, upon him. And then when he went out to war, verse 10 again says that the Lord gave the king into his hands. So who's the real savior here? Who's the real deliverer here? Who should get the glory here? Is it Othniel? Or is it someone else? Years ago I was in L.A. and I was at this event and this famous actor walked in. There's about 30 or 40 of us. All of the attention was on this one man, as you can imagine. That's what celebrity culture does, doesn't it? A celebrity walks in the room, it's like a tractor beam. Everyone kind of just, they just kind of suck the air out of the room, and all the attention goes to that person. And so in the midst of that, we fail to see the other things that are going on around us. And that we might be tempted to do that with Othniel. As we're going to go along and we're going to see other judges, our text is going to point out their flaws, their failures. But we don't really get any of that here. He's spoken of in a positive term. And so maybe, just maybe, if it was written in a different way, we would be tempted to worship Othniel instead of God who brought salvation through Othniel. Actually, when you think about it, Othniel's name even points to this sort of hermeneutical application. Othniel's name literally means time of God. The book of Judges is a book about saviors. But behind each savior, raising them up, empowering them, and then giving them victory is God. Such that without God, this salvation would not be possible. It should remind us of Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he proclaims that salvation belongs to the Lord. So here we have a story sort of stripped down, right, stripped down to its bare minimum details, such that we stare not at Othniel, but at Othniel's God and the salvation Othniel's God brings to his people. And when we do this, when we stare more at God than Othniel, when we give more proper attention to God, the God of our salvation, something happens and we see it in verse 11. I don't know if you see it. Four words. Four letters. Rest. Now we're gonna see this in many of the, the stories of Judges. After God saves his people, rest comes upon his people. In our story, the land has rest for 40 years. There is social rest, civil rest, right? Israel is at peace. There's freedom, there's joy, right? You could you could just imagine them, they're farming and enjoying the the, the labor. At their own hands, they're, 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 they're marrying and giving their sons and daughters to be married. This is a time of peace. Worshipping God. This might not be the American dream, but it is a universal dream, right? We all want to be at rest. And the rest was based not on their work, it was based on God's work. I don't know if you can relate to this, but there are probably very few days I actually feel rested. Rested. I think that's one of the consequences of living in this this, this kind of crazy world. We all are restless. We all have our unique hamster wheels. But there's something deep inside all of us that wants rest. And when I think about my own restlessness, my own worry, my own anxiousness, often, not always, but often, it comes because I'm preoccupied by myself. My, my restlessness comes because I'm trying to prove myself or gain people's approval or control things and in my surrounding or in my influence. Or maybe it's because I'm trying to gain people's attention. You see, my restlessness, probably like your restlessness, is not because I don't have enough hours in the day or that I didn't get enough sleep last night it's because I'm too pro- preoccupied with myself. Jesus, in Matthew 11, speaks these powerful words. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light the thing i just want to point out in matthew 11 is that jesus promises rest not as we look inward or try harder or download the newest app that promises to make your life simpler no rest here comes as we turn our attention off of ourselves and on to jesus christ It's when we take his burden and trade it for our burden. Particularly in Matthew 11, the ultimate burden that Jesus takes off is the crushing burden of the law of God. We couldn't fulfill it. We couldn't keep it. We sin. But Jesus did keep it, and Jesus never sinned. And if we want rest in this life as a foretaste of the ultimate rest in the world to come, then maybe, just maybe, our problem is primarily that we forget to look for God. Israel, back in verse 7 of our text, it says that they forgot the Lord. And because they couldn't see God, because they had forgotten God, they became enslaved to other gods. And with enslavement, all enslavement, comes restlessness. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we want to welcome you, and we're grateful that you're here today. And perhaps you're here because you you too are feeling maybe a bit restless. Maybe not physically restless, but spiritually restless. Well, know this. I'm no expert on how to to gain rest in life. I'm actually probably the worst person to talk to. I'm usually tired. I rarely get enough rest. But I know something about spiritual rest. I know where spiritual rest comes from. And it comes by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you want to know more about that rest, the the, the rest that you can find in Jesus Christ, I'd love to have that conversation. I'd love to talk more about it. So come find me after, or better yet, talk to someone in this church. There are many men and women who would love to discuss and explain what it looks like to rest in Jesus Christ. Now, for the rest of us, God's reminding us this morning that not only are we to cry out to God in our distress, like Israel did, but we're also called to look out for God in our distress, Rest and salvation, all throughout this book, are connected. There's a connection between salvation, deliverance, and rest. Such that the extent to which you understand that you are saved and delivered is the extent to which you understand that you can rest in that salvation. So if you're feeling restless this morning, this week, like every week, perhaps turn your attention to God. Think about his redemptive accomplishments brought on by Jesus Christ. Meditate on the gospel. Think about the gospel and then cling to it in faith. Because ultimately, our restlessness doesn't come because we're vitamin deficient. It's because we're gospel deficient. So what is God doing? Well, simple. God's creating a context for salvation which leads to rest. That's what he's doing. Now let's, let's look at the second story. Turn to verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to the king, to Eglon the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king, and he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of the roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool of the chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when they did not open the doors, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while well, they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped Syria. When he arrived, he shouted a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him to the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed At that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Look back in verse 12. We're right back where we started, aren't we? The people again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God raises up Eglon, the the king of Moab, and with the help of the Amorites and the Amalekites, they defeat Israel and take possession of the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. And for 18 years, Israel serves Eglon, the king of Moab. But, like we've seen so often before, they cry out to the Lord, verse 15, and God raises up a deliverer, Ehud. Now, who's Ehud? Well, we learn a few things. We, we learn that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's the son of Gira, And then we learn a third detail. He's left-handed, which is weird when you think about it. Well, why do we need to know that detail? I mean, uh, when I moved here, I didn't introduce myself like, I'm Stephen, I, I came from Portland, I'm right-handed. It's, it's an odd detail. Well, we're going to learn why this is actually an important detail soon. Ehud makes a sword, a two-edged sword, and he puts it on his right thigh under his clothes such that it can't be detected. You see, Ehud has a secret plan. And what follows is his execution of this secret plan. So Ehud's going to take some tribute to the king, which this tribute was probably produce, some sort of food from Israel, And then what happens next is pretty interesting, okay? What we're meant to do is laugh, okay? Starting in verse 17, everything that happens is funny, right? It's sort of crude, but it's funny. It's meant to be funny. We're meant to laugh. I wish the middle schoolers were here. They would be leading us in their laughter. The fun begins in verse 17. And we learn that Egon is a very big man. Now, let me just say this. We live in a world of bullying. We live in a world of fat shaming. And so this might seem like fat shaming, that that the text is shaming Eglon for being fat. If that's your concern, let me just put it at ease. That's not what's going on here at all. First, when this was written, being large was a good thing. It meant that you had wealth, money. That, That was a good thing. Our culture in many ways couldn't be any different than Israel's culture. No, no, no. The, the idea is that the king, right? The, the, the text wants to, to remind us that this king, Eglon's gluttony, we could say, his bigness comes at the cost of Israel's thinness. This isn't fat-shaming. It's mocking injustice. Eglon and the Moabites are getting fat off of Israel's poverty. That's what's going on here. And in many ways, we're meant to chuckle. Eglon's name, it means little calf. That's what we call oxymoron. Took me a second, right? That's an oxymoron. It's when reality doesn't match. It's like little, little giant, right? His, his reality didn't match his name. Maybe, he won, maybe at one point he was small. Maybe he was a, a small runt of a person. But now, because he keeps eating this tribute, because Israel's enslaved, now he's a big man. Now back to the story. Ehud presents his tribute to the king, verse 18. He then leaves for a moment, but then when, he, when he's with his sort of these soldiers, these chaperones, he, he, he says, actually, I have a message for the king. And so they bring him back. And Eglon the king looks at Ehud and says, and thinks, I mean, who is this little man, Ehud? I mean, what, what could he do to me? Probably what's going on when it says that he's left-handed, what they're saying is that he doesn't have use of his right hand. So probably, although we're not sure, but probably he has a disability. Somehow maybe he has a deformity, and so he can't use his right hand hand. And so Egon looks at him and says, what can this guy do to me? He can't do anything. And let me just say, isn't it wonderful, and we're going to find out in in a second, but isn't it wonderful how God uses the most unlikely of people? God uses men and women we would never choose on our team. And actually, in the case of Ehud, it's precisely because of his weakness that God he has success. His mission is successful because of his weakness, not in spite of his weakness. So just remember, your weakness, whatever it is, in the hands of God is far more powerful than strength without God. David and Goliath wasn't a fair fight. It it, Looks like it's not a fair fight in Goliath's manner. Here's big Goliath with his mighty sword and David with his sling. But it's not a fair fight because David didn't just have his slings, he had God. Not a fair fight. Weakness in the hand of God is a powerful, mighty thing. And so the king naively right, tells the guards to leave. And now Ehud and Eglon have a private meeting. Eglon is sitting in the cool of the chamber. You sort of get this idea that he's relaxed, not a care in the world, just chilling. And so Ehud tells the king that he has a message from God. Whereas earlier, it's he, uh, he had said, I have a message for the king. Now he says, I have a message from God to the king. He has his attention. The king stands up, right? This is, this is juicy. This is, ooh, maybe this is a traitor in his mix. And so the, the, the king stands up, verse 20, and Ehud reaches out to make his point. I thought it was funny. <laughs> right. He he reaches out. His 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 little dagger on his right thigh that was concealed and he thrusts it into the belly of Eglon and the Eglon's belly kind of, you know, devours it. And he falls over dead. And not just that, verse twenty two, he becomes defiled, right? So <laughs> then Egon Ehud escapes, right? The plan is is perfectly executed. Even with the servants, right? They're waiting, kind of twirling their thumbs, going like, what's going on? And then they they smell this horrible smell, and they think, he's got to be on his own porcelain throne. He must be relieving himself. And so they wait even longer, and Ehud even has longer to escape. Eventually, these soldiers wait long enough. They're embarrassed. Verse 24, they take their key out. They unlock the door, only to find their king dead. And Ehud... David Blaine style, he's gone. Ehud escapes to Syrah, which is sort of an unknown city, but it's probably in the hill country of Ephraim, which our text points to. And so he's north of Jerusalem, verse 27, and he blows a trumpet. Ironic, right? He blows a trumpet having just escaped from Jericho. Do you remember how Jericho, back in Joshua, falls? By way of trumpets. It's no wonder he tells um, everyone, God has handed the Moabites into our hands. And so the Israelites pursue Moab as they're fleeing, as they're running, and they cut him off at uh, the Jordan. That would be, they're only escaped, and so they cut him off, and they kill 10,000 of them. They slaughter them. Now, in verse 29, we read that these were men. They were strong, able-bodied men. But there's something else going on here. There's sort of a double, there's double meaning going on here. That could also mean not just that they were strong, able-bodied. It could mean they were large and overweight. You can interpret it that way. And because this is funny, I think we're meant to, to, to kind of get that. Right? You know the old saying, as... as As the as the nation as the king goes, so the nation goes. Right? We we just translate that into Moabite. It's as Eglon goes, so his soldiers went. Right? There's sort of a divine, heavenly karma coming upon them. They were too large to run away. They couldn't get away. Those men who were once strong and able-bodied warriors, now they're weak and no match for Israel. And the story ends. It ends like the last story. They have rest 80 years. 40 years for Othniel, now 80 years, double. Now, maybe the story sort of makes you uncomfortable, right? A deceitful assassin, a deceitful assassin who God uses, raises up. couldn't God have used someone else? Someone like Othniel? Someone from the right side of the tracks? He kind of makes us uncomfortable. And yet, we're meant to sort of laugh at the the ridiculousness of this story. But I just want to think about why is this funny? Why is the story funny? The, the, The story really is only funny because for a moment we kind of jet out and we see things from God's perspective. Because from our perspective, from Israel's perspective, Eglon is terrifying. He's big. He's powerful. He's got a lot of warriors. It's only funny when we see things how God sees things. Because to God, Eglon, the Moabite, is laughable. I once was volunteering at an after-school program and I remember, a, I think it was a first or second grader, came up to me as we were playing basketball and said, I can beat you one-on-one. I was, I, I'm 6'3", he was like 3'6". <laughs> and I remember laughing. It's ridiculous. That was my response. To laugh. And that's how God views Eglon and the Moabites, Psalm 2 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds the nations, including Moab, in derision. What God's teaching us is that the tyrants of this world, they they have no real power. They're not invincible. They're not all-knowing. They're not God. God may raise up some eglons in this world, God, God, raised up Egon to discipline Israel. We read that in the text, but they still have no real power. Even Satan is no match for God. Martin Luther once famously said that Satan is still God's Satan. You see that in Job. In many ways, I think the humor of this story it's meant to remind us of how God sees the nation, sees the tyrants, sees evil. How God sees those who persecute the righteous. God sees them in a sort of holy and divine laughter. Looking back in Judges 3, verse 16, Ehud has a sword. I don't know if you you saw some of the details, but this sort of dagger, this sword, is described as a two-edged sword. The word edge is from the Hebrew idiom mouth. So you could literally translate this as a two-mouthed sword. Which makes sense because if you keep reading in verse 20, Ehud calls this sword the mouth of God. Well, in the Bible, a two-edged sword, it always signifies speech. We see this in Psalm 149. We see this in Proverbs 5, 3, and 4. And we see this in Hebrews 4.12, right? God's word is described as sharper than a two-edged sword. And then, keep reading, you get to the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Jesus, the king of kings, is riding in to judge the nations, to vindicate his people, to purify his church. And what is Jesus holding in his hand? You guessed it a two-edged sword. Do you realize that Eglon killed by a two-edged word of God is a picture of the end of time when the nations will be judged, stand before God and be judged? All of evil, all of God's enemies defeated. Ehud and his sword of salvation anticipates Christ and the final act of salvation and though this story is sort of funny, that won't be any laughing matter. And yet there is still hope, even in this. Because Ehud's defeat of Moab, it is a foretaste of another aspect of salvation. Because even Moab will be saved in the end. At least part of Moab. How do I know that? Because one of the greatest kings of Israel, David himself, came from a Moabite woman named Ruth. So what is God doing? Well, he's saving his people through a funny and unlikely story by way of a funny and unlikely savior. And now last, let's, let's look at the story of Shamgar. Right? One verse, verse 31. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. All right, we'll spend the next two hours on this verse. No, right? Authors and commentators, I mean, poor Shamgar, they give no attention to him, right? He, gets, he doesn't get the long book. I mean, who could blame you? He, he comes and goes with one verse. So who's Shamgar? Well, we know a few things. We know that his name, Shamgar, it's not Hebrew, which is interesting. We also know that he's the son of Anath. This could be a few things. It could be that he's literally the son of Anath. There's a problem with that. Anath is feminine. And usually, when you're son of this, it's attached to the man. That's that's how this works in ancient Near Eastern culture. So that's probably not right. It's probably not that he's the son of this woman, Anath. There's also, it could be translated, he's the son, or we could call him a worshiper, of the goddess Anath. There was a goddess in the, kind of the Canaanite pantheon of gods, the goddess of war, named Anath. She was a bloodthirsty god. So maybe he was a worshiper of a foreign god. Now, now, at best, shame guard's a mystery. He's probably, although we're not sure, but he's probably not an Israelite. He seems to have a shady past, some sort of idol-worshipping in his past. But he does something in our verse. We learn that he kills 600 Philistines. Now, did he do it by himself? Did he do it with sort of a farmer's militia? No idea. We just know how he did it. He did it with an ox goad. I didn't know what that was. I'm a city boy. I had to look this up. Okay, an ox goad, it's like eight feet long, six inches in circumference at the larger end. The small end ha- is armed with kind of a small prick to, to drive the oxen. Then the other end has a, has a spade, a sort of iron paddle to, to clear the plow. So it's, it's kind of a good weapon. Probably not the best weapon but it's an interesting weapon. But then again, in the book of Judges, there's all of these interesting weapons. We have Ehud's weird dagger. We've got Shamgar's ox code. We've got Jael's hammer, Gideon's horns and torches, a woman's millstone, Samson's jawbone. Right. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised. So, so what do we do with this mysterious man? who's probably not from Israel, who's probably a farmer using a farmer's tool to kill 600 Philistines, well, the important thing comes last. The important thing for us to understand about Shamgar is what the text says. He too saved Israel. Now we do learn in chapter 5, in verse 6, Deborah has this wonderful song after they're delivered. We learn there that she references Shamgard as a sort of local legend. So Shamgard is a sort of celebrity, which shouldn't shock us if you killed 600 people with a sort of ox, with any spear, ox, goat, or whatever. You should be a celebrity. You should be a legend. And yet there's so much we don't know about him. Was he an Israelite? What was his connection to, to the Canaanites? We don't know if the Spirit of God fell upon them. We, we just don't know. We don't, we don't know, and yet we know enough to get the point. It's the point that God keeps making all throughout chapter 3. God delivers, God delivers, God delivers, God saves. We know so little about Shamgar, but we learn so much about Shamgar's power behind him. God. The mysteriousness is sort of part of the point. In each of these stories, we get enough detail to get the point. God is God and He will save His people. And yet, if you're anything like me, sometimes it's so hard to see God. In the midst of mess and brokenness and just the, the, the mundane parts of our life, it's so hard to actually see God working. It, it might be easier in hindsight. We can look back and see God, but in the present? Oh, it's sometimes so hard to see God working. And so we sometimes ask, like I said earlier, we ask, well, where is he? Is he actually working for our good? And so if all we had was the Shamgar story, we we might be confused, right? In verse 31, there's there's one character who is missing. God's not mentioned, is he? So if we're just staring at the story, we might think, oh, this is just Shamgar's doing. God had nothing to do with this. But we just have to keep reading. In chapter 10, verse 11, the Lord speaks to his people. And this is what he says. The Lord says, did I not save you? Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Amokites, and from the Philistines? Now, up to chapter 10, there's only one person who's victorious over the Philistines. Shamgar. You see, just like Othniel, Shamgar doesn't get the credit. As chapter 10 reminds us, it wasn't Shamgar who really saved them. It was God. God working through Shamgar. And so if all we have is verse 31, we might not see God, we might only see Shamgar in his his celebrity legendary battle. But just because we don't see God doesn't mean that he's not there. Just because we don't feel God doesn't mean that he's not there. The mystery of Shamgar's victory is finally and fully traceable to God himself. And know this, the mystery of your victory The mystery of your salvation, the mystery of your comfort and your peace is fully and finally traceable to God and God alone. So whatever you're going through, whatever your problem is, whatever the pain is, we learn here that God is near. God is present. God will never leave us or forsake us because in the midst of sin God is surely saving us so where is God well God is where he's always been he's with his people he's with his people providentially moving them to help them to comfort them and ultimately to deliver them and save them that's where God is it's what God's always been doing, and it's what God is still doing. Let's pray. God, we, we are so blind so often to what you're doing in and through our lives. We, we don't see, and so we, we, we cry out to you, where are you? And yet, Lord, we are time and time again reminded through your word that you are with us. And so, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that, that you would give us better eyesight, that you'd give us more faith and trust. And, Lord, that we would, we, we, would, we would be like Shamgar and Ehud and Othniel in that we would merely point to your glory and not seek to gain our own. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.